0: Well, let's let's change the quality to maximum. That sounds right. Yeah, who who needs high quality when I have maximum quality?
1: Welcome to the Full Stack Jamstack podcast. Is it not like tying a knot? Simon knot?
0: Well, I don't know. <laughs> so you don't know. Uh, in in German it's knot it's not. very hard knot but okay oh, yeah, that's that's easy knot. yeah i haven't yet decided on whether i like the not one more
1: i like as much possible trying to say people's real names in their real languages i think it's just like a respect kind of thing you are a developer who has worked on a lot of open source projects you contribute a lot to the blitz js world you've done libraries and meetup talks and you're building this really cool company around a project called quarrel so we're gonna have a lot to get into and thanks for joining us
0: yeah, thanks for inviting me. Awesome to be here.
1: We talk a lot about the different frameworks and how they all interact with each other. So we always really enjoy getting people who are kind of working on something that's not necessarily in the Redwood Verse. And a lot of people in the Redwood Verse have been talking about Coral and I know there's a lot of a lot of interest in it, so we're we're happy to have you.
2: Should we start on your open source contributions or what you're doing to survive? Make some money in this world. Actually, I'd
1: actually, i like to know, just before we get into that, I always like to know kind of how people first got into programming. It's like, what was your first programming language? Were you a CS student, a bootcamp grad, a total self-starter? How did you get that going?
0: I started programming in elementary school when my father introduced me to, uh, do you know Scratch, their children's programming language? It's awesome. And I started like coding little games with it. And that's like formally like my introduction to programming. So when I was around like 13, 14, 15, and I actually learned programming in school. It's interesting that you asked me whether I was a CS student because I actually am currently a CS student. Oh,
1: okay. Um, I think I do that actually. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I am going to university at the moment. I'm in my, I think it's the first bachelor's semester. I'm doing some (laughs) computer science stuff. And then a lot of open source work, basically 50, 50 at the moment. That's how I got into programming by my father introducing me to it.
2: For my third year dissertation, my theory was, can you control robots using Scratch? And I was like, I just want to write JavaScript. And he was like, the frameworks we use to control the robots do have JavaScript endpoints. And I was like, say no more. And then they were like, but you have to also put it to something. We'll just put the kid thing on it, like a kid controlled a robot. And they're like, Yep, that's good enough.
0: I have built a very similar thing, like not on the hypothesis level, but do you know Billy Bass? Like that speaking fish? Yeah. That
1: it like sings songs and stuff. Yeah. Correct.
0: So my sister found a video online where somebody connected that to Alexa. You say like, Billy Bass, what's the time? And then it answers and it moves its mouth and it's, it's hella funny. And my sister was like, Simon, we can build that as well. I didn't want to build an Alexa integration. I told her because somebody already did that, but I also didn't want to mess with Alexa. And I was like, let's build a remote controlled billybot and we got some motor controllers and a Raspberry Pi and had whenever you connected to the power, it would boot up a Wi-Fi hotspot and you could log in there and then there was like a remote control and another subpage where there was like a fully fledged scratch programming environment. Where people could program that fish using scratch we built that and it worked and it was a lot of fun you wrote a program that uh, told the fish to like bang its head against the wall for like a thousand times and then it rumbled off the floor my old school actually uses that at the moment to uh, teach programming to uh, i think fifth grade students
1: that's really cool yeah just to set the context for any listeners who've never heard of scratch it's a really really high level high abstraction programming language the idea being that you're taking entire functions or like if then else kind of statements and boiling a lot of them down to just like single lines that you can then use in like a GUI to kind of like smash everything together to write super rudimentary programs. It's really nice for people who like you say have never programmed before who want to start at total zero. I know the Harvard CS50 course always starts with scratch on day one. It's a really really fantastic learning resource and it sounds like you can even do some fun stuff with it as an actual language too.
0: Actually a friend of mine uh, once was like, Hey Simon, I found out what's the recursion depth of Scratch. It was like the recursion depth is like 63 or something.
1: I love that. That is too good. (laughs) Cool. So let's start getting into some of your open source work. You've created Mm -hmm. something called SuperJSON, which has a tagline I really love, JSON on steroids. And it says that SuperJSON is a high-fidelity replacement to JSON.Stringify. So first off, what's wrong with JSON.Stringify?
0: Super JSON was born out of necessity in Blitz.js. And the thing with Blitz.js is it abstracts all the API and endpoint logic away from you. So from a developer kind of standpoint, you can call backend functions from the front end. It just looks like calling any other function. That's like the amazing thing about Blitz, at least what I see as at least one of the main selling points of Blitz. So now that to developers, they don't see, that something goes over the wire, they wouldn't expect anything to happen to the data because it goes over the wire. When developers know that there is some transfer happening, they expect that they need to do some JSON ramifications. With Blitz, you don't see it. So it would surprise you if data changed. What you're Um, talking about
1: is called serialization, right?
0: Correct. Yeah. And because serialization is hidden away from you, you want it to be as seamless as possible. The thing is with JSON that for its use, it's fine. Like it supports a very limited, but powerful set of features. So it's objects, arrays, numbers, booleans, null, and strings. I think that's all, but there's a lot of other JavaScript types that it doesn't support and the important ones there are something like undefined maps, sets, regular expressions. And then a lot of special numbers. So not a number is not supported and infinity and minus infinity. And actually there is a negative zero, which I found out a couple of weeks ago. So negative zero is also not supported. Because (laughs) JavaScript. Because JavaScript, right. I think so. Negative zero is what you get when you divide zero by negative infinity. So there's these special cases. And like you could argue that negative zero is not something that you need to care about, but especially the other runs, map, set, regex, not undefined, not a number and, and that stuff. You want to find a way to serialize that. There are historically a couple of ways that you can do that. So the first one is just write your own serialization format, toss JSON away, use something like protobuf or avro, or the, there's a lot of JSON alternatives, but they are not as widespread as JSON in any way. So they are mostly used in microservice environments and not at all in the frontend ecosystem and browser development tools that have support. So you want to stay at something that's JSON compatible. So that was like the first big design constraint for SuperJSON. JSON compatibility, just to have the whole ecosystem compatibility, tooling compatibility, and just have something that's easy to work with for developers. And then the other thing is there are JSON derivatives that achieve embedding those JavaScript specific types into JSON. They use like some magic strings to uh, achieve that. But the problem with these is they are not easy for developers to read. So when you read them, there's a lot of magic characters in there and it's just not easy to inspect. From that, another super JSON design constraint came, which is good developer experience that's easy to read. And then the last one is it needs to work both for transfers from the server to the client which is a direction where you you have trust in the server so you can go that way. But it also needs to work for transfers from the client to the server. And that's a problematic one because you can't trust the client in those web scenarios. It could be any hacker, any mischief. So it also needs to work in the in the other way and that's what is the fundamental thing that rules out Dvalue. So Dvalue is another attempt at the same problem that SuperJSON solves. It's uh, written by Rich Harris and it basically works like, it's really awesome. To be honest, it basically works like give it some JavaScript value and then it will create JavaScript code that when run recreates that value. So it's basically like take a value and get a JavaScript code that then when run recreates a value. That is super awesome because it creates very small payloads, but also it's not very developer friendly and it only works from the server to the client because you wouldn't want the server to execute any JavaScript code that gets sent over. So these were like the main design constraints. And then what we did with SuperJSON is basically take any JavaScript value and create a JSON compatible version of it. When you have a set, it is replaced by an array. And when you have a map, it is replaced by, I think a list of key value pairs. And when you have like a regular expression, it's represented by a string that contains that expression and, and so on and so forth. So for every non-JSON compatible value, we have like a transformation that makes a JSON compatible. And then whenever we transform these things, we take note of it. So we say that value at like a.b.c, Right now, that's an array, but it used to be a set. When the super JSON value is transmitted over the wire, you can take those annotations and reapply them to the JSON-compatible run to get the old version. That's basically what it does. Like, half of the super JSON payload is fully JSON-compatible, or everything super is JSON-compatible, but half, half of it is very easy to read, and just like you'd expect it to work.
2: I've got niggles that i've dealt with with json passes before and let's see if super Jason fixes them and this is my favorite what is javascript doing a json string that is a boolean value so the string says true or false inside of it does super Jason help you force booleans
0: Well, I don't really know if I understood the issue correctly. So if you have a string that contains basically anything, let it be true or false or foo or bar, you'd want it to come over as a string, right? And
2: this is the thing. So I've worked with some APIs where I'm receiving JSON that I need to pass, but they've made mistakes where they've sent their booleans through as strings. So it's a string saying, True or a string saying false, and I had to go on this like long soul search through Stack Overflow to find this like force boolean script to make sure when JSON is passed, it passes it as a proper boolean instead of it just being a string. I was just wondering if that's something super JSON helped with.
0: Oh uh, no, that. That is not something that Super Jason would deal with. So Super JSON uh, tries to not do these opinionated things and doesn't know anything about your schema. So just imagine like a JSON record. It represents some user and there's a username in it, and username in it. And then the user decided to name himself false or true. You don't want to become to have that become a boolean. So we don't do anything about that.
1: And what you're looking for is you're just getting it over the wire in the smallest possible way. That is like your entire deal, right?
2: With all the types and the expanded
0: types. With all the types, correct. That's like the big thing with all the types. And then the smallest way is something that we will be looking at in the future. But at the moment, it's mostly get it to work. Like there's a lot of very intricate ways in that we can have it become smaller, but that would also increase the complexity of SuperJSON itself. So there's some very computer science specific things that you can do using hashing and direct, acyclic graphs and stuff like that. But we don't do that at the moment.
2: To move it also high level, I think I've worked out one of the uses. On the server, you have an updated at, a date, right? So it's mm-hmm. a, just a standard new date. Correct. With standard JSON, when that gets sent through, your client will then see it as an ISO string, right?
0: Correct, because JSON stringify turns it to a string, like it calls to string on it and then, yeah.
2: But say if you passed it through Super JSON, that object, so that date in the object would now be a date instead of a string. So saving you one then compiling it to a date again on the client
0: correct that is a prime use example for for super json
2: glad i found one because <laughs> i was like does it do this i need to check <laughs> another one is regex. you have regex date i don't think i've ever set a set through json
0: because it wasn't possible before easy
2: <laughs> there you go we're, we're all learning things and a map what do they even mean in SuperJSON? A map? Is that a JavaScript map? Or Yeah,
0: it's a JavaScript map. So the ES6 map and set. Could you give me a use case for that? Yeah, sure.
2: Just so I truly know if my mind is blown.
0: Since... ES6, which I think came out in 2015, there is that new, these two new types called set and map. And the thing with set is it's basically like an array, but values can only appear once in them. So they're kind of easy to, to make an array out of or make it JSON compatible.
1: Yeah. Python also has sets.
0: Yeah. They're like a very fundamental thing in, especially in mathematics and they're very helpful for, for modeling a lot of stuff. And then also there are maps. And the thing with maps is they are basically like objects in the way that you put in a key and a value and then access those values by key. But maps with regular JavaScript objects, keys can only be strings. So when you use a number as a key, it will be transformed to a string before using it as a key. So there is no difference between using the number zero and the string that contains the number zero with JavaScript objects. but with JavaScript maps, it does make a difference. The key can be any value and they are compared by triple equality. So it's the same as when you write three equal signs, also referred to as identity or or something. That's a very constructed way of using it, but it would allow you to have two different values. One at the key of number zero and the other at the key of string with the character zero in it. That's how how you could use maps. And then there's a lot of other ways that you could use it. Maybe you want to map from some dates to other dates or something, and map would allow you to use dates as keys or use regexes or anything, basically.
2: So say, for example, I had a list of 10 dates, but then I wanted to calculate the date from 10 days from that date. You could add the logic into SuperJSON, to then return a map with 10 days added as well?
0: Mm. No,
2: because that would add calculations
0: to the map. Yeah, so SuperJSON does not do any calculations itself. It's really just about serializing and deserializing values and not do any changes, any modifications. Yeah, it's designed to be really, don't do anything that's not serializing or deserializing.
2: The reason that I'm asking these things is because I like to find the use cases as like what's the highest level that I can understand to go from. Easy one, undefined. What would undefined be in JSON? I guess it would be a string saying undefined.
0: Uh, No, actually undefined in JSON would just not appear in the JSON because it's undefined. (laughs) Of course. It seems weird, but then it makes sense in the end because... When you just not include a value in a JSON and then you parse it, when you access it in JavaScript, it will just appear as undefined again. That makes sense in that regard. But yeah, there are some some ways in which undefined is not really supported in JSON as well. Imagine an array having undefined values in it. With JSON, they would just be replaced by nulls.
1: Yeah, this type of stuff comes up with SQL because it's like the talk mm-hmm. about how do we want to have, like you say, nothing there, or do you mm-hmm. want to have a value of nothing there? Yeah. And it's like, uh wait, what? I think it's really cool. You mentioned how Rich Harris has his own version of this called D value. I actually found Rich Harris has a repo where he compares Super JSON to D value. And the fact that you created something that Rich Harris even felt the need to compare to something he made is pretty cool. I'm yeah. a big fan of Rich Harris. I, I really like the work he does. He's done a lot a lot of great open source stuff. Yeah. And, it really shows that, you know, the fact that you're, you're like a, a student just making these open sort of projects <laughs> and he's like, oh, I need to show people why my version is better. It says a lot about the quality of the, the stuff you're putting out. I want to also uh, kind of get on to some other stuff so we can talk about these other things you're, you're working on here. Mm-hmm. Real quick, though, I'd love to hear how you first heard about Blitz and what motivated you to get involved.
0: In the beginning of 2020, Brampton posted a the big tweet where he published his thoughts about Blitz and his... What he wanted to create, I think it was like in January or something. and February. um, February, yeah. And he asked for people to come and help him. I really liked the idea of Blitz. So I worked with Next.js before and working with APIs just was a struggle. There's one talk that I gave where basically the first half is just about how bad we are at that whole API management thing. Because there's a whole lot of complexity that people should not have to deal with because it's not central to the applications. Then when Blitz came around and was like, we solved that for you, you don't need to worry about APIs or anything, I was sold. And I knew that I was interested in doing uh, infrastructure and and framework uh, work and the whole developer tooling ecosystem and just wrote to Brandon and I was like, yeah, I want to help. And he was like, sure, there are these issues, go work on them. And then I worked on them and it was fun. Yeah, now I'm, I think I'm level two maintainer. Yeah, and I'm like responsible for Super Jason.
1: Yeah, and you said in one of the talks that I've watched, you called Ruby on Rails the mother of all productivity. So it's sounds <laughs> like you're also someone who is a, is a Rails fan as well, which seems to be a common theme here.
0: Yeah, so I have never used Ruby on Rails actually, but... It has quite a quite a legendary status, and um, I really admire the productivity that it used to inspire. I think nowadays there are better alternatives: Blitz, Redwood, other stuff. But Ruby on Rails really is like it's nice, and it's something that you should take or draw inspiration from.
1: Yeah, it's a northern light we can all kind of point to. Is is what I've really found, especially because. You know, Redwood and Blitz, they come at this from totally different ways. But like Mm -hmm. you say, they are both are aiming at that same kind of northern star, which I find very interesting.
0: Yeah. What I really like about Blitz is that it goes out of your way. If you don't want to use the whole Blitz feature, it can just be Next.js plus that zero API layer. And then when you want to have other things like database integration or the the whole generator thing, installers and stuff, you can have that but I really liked the flexibility. And I I tried out Redwood, but the thing is I'm not that used to GraphQL. I've actually never worked on a GraphQL project. So it was all a bit weird for me, but I think I I just need to get used to it.
1: Yeah, GraphQL definitely takes, it's got got a learning curve for sure. I found Redwood to be a pretty good way to learn GraphQL because I was Mm -hmm. coming at already knowing some React. So for me, I was able to kind of just focus on the GraphQL layer. Yeah, I would be curious Mm -hmm. once you get a little more deeper into it, how you'll feel about it. I understand that it has a lot of startup cost. Getting that GraphQL API mm-hmm. is really, it's a ton of work. It's a huge struggle, but once you have it, I find that it's just such a natural way and it's like fits my mental model so well. So yeah. I really love it. And that's the thing that's kind of kept me in Redwood.
2: I personally think the hardest part of GraphQL is schema definition. There's multiple ways to do it. Using Prisma Nexus is one with object oriented definitions and then SDL is the other one. I've used both now, and I prefer um, SDLs. I don't know why I said, uh, I know I do. I prefer SDLs, but Bison, done by the guys over at Bind, uses Nexus with a GraphQL client. They use Next as the base. Blitz is kind of the middle ground between... You want blitz of next with no API, or you want next with a GraphQL API, or you want not next and a GraphQL
1: API. Yeah. You said that one more time and say bison was the middle one, you, you said yes. blitz by accident.
2: Yeah. Did I? Bison's the middle ground that has a GraphQL API and next.
0: I didn't I didn't really catch that you made a mistake because in my head it was like Bison is an interesting middle ground because it has a different approach to the framework thing, right? Because I think Bison is more like a template and then some logic about updating the template.
1: Yeah, it uses EJS. Mm -hmm. We talk about this in our FS Roundtable episode, how Blitz, you guys created your kind of like own templates. So I think they all have templating built into them. And um, I think they just kind of have different ways of going about them, but really all three of them, they're, they are just full stack frameworks. It's yeah. about how do we have a nice front end framework integrated with some sort of back end database, mm-hmm. ORM like tool That's that's and then contained in a mono repo. That's really kind of what they all have in common. And then they each combine different set of technologies to achieve that goal. And now they all kind of have a different mismatch of technology. So they're each mm-hmm. kind of like entirely their own separate thing in terms of the way they combine, because all these technologies end up so tightly coupled to each other. So whatever set you pick and you put together is going to just be its own thing. And this is something that I think about just because it, it ends up with, and we've talked about this on the show, it ends up with a lot of duplicated work and everyone figuring out the same, how to yeah. figure out to solve the same problems. So be very interested to see if, you know, stuff like SuperJSON and coral and, you know, things you're working on, how these start to cross-pollinate Let's get into Coral because this is a a really interesting project. I don't know a whole lot about the area it is in. So why don't you just give us like a description of, you know, what Coral is and what problem you're aiming to solve with it.
0: Sure. When you build a web application at one point, at some point you will have some need for having delayed jobs or some job queuing or background queuing kind of thing. So imagine you build something, some application where after users signed up, you want to wait for seven days and then send them an email, which is like, hey, how was your first seven days? Because maybe you found out that that's a nice way to increase user retention or something. So you know you want to have some job be delayed by seven days. In the past, we used job queuing frameworks like Sidekick, or delay job or rescue or salary, there's a ton of them. But what they all have in common is that they don't work with serverless because basically you need some kind of a database for them to connect to, maybe it's Redis or Postgres or something. And then they will periodically take a look at the database and figure out which jobs need to be run. After seven days, they will see that job is ready and they can execute it. But that only works if your application runs all the time, 24 seven, because otherwise it couldn't pull that database. But now with serverless, we don't have servers running 24 seven and that's good, but it takes all those background key libraries from us. And the basic idea behind Quirrell is to create a job queuing service that allows you to do all of the same things. And from a technical standpoint, it works similar. So you have your serverless function and now that calls Squirrel and says, well, I have that job and call me back in seven days. And then Squirrel runs 24 seven, can do the same polling stuff and work in the same way as those queuing libraries that you used to have. And then when the job is done, it will just call back your serverless function and it will start and execute the job. So that's how it technically works. But from a developer standpoint, Nothing really changes. Uh, all that complexity is hidden behind you. Uh, it's, it's hidden behind the uh, the query client, and you don't need to worry f- with all of that. And then, like the idea was to create like the most developer friendly queue library possible. You
2: need a task manager when you get to a certain stage of a project. It's never straight away. This subject is hot on my mind because now we're to a certain stage of a fun we're thinking about things like analytics, reports, deleting logs if they don't need to survive for more than three days for example and all these things you start thinking how am I going to do that easily even if you use this in a server full environment you still got to then learn the cognitive load of knowing how a task manager runs so That's when we start looking at products at Everfun like Quirrell and Repeater and think, can we just offload this cognitive load? This service just pings us back in 24 hours and says, do this. How do you ping back? Is that through a webhook structure?
0: Correctly. It's basically just webhooks, but Quirrell provides that webhook logic for you. So... For Next.js, it uses API functions. For Redwood, it would use the functions. I think it's in that API slash functions folder. It uses um, that one and the whole webhooks kind of thing is hidden away from you, but it does all of the things that people would want to do with webhooks. So it does signature based uh, authentication. Only Quirrell can call these APIs and not anyone that knows those endpoints. And it also does all of the, like it hides all of the Complexity of communicating with cruel for me. Okay. You
1: mentioned that it works with both Next and Redwood. Are there other frameworks it works with as well? Yeah,
0: so at the moment it works with Blitz.js, Next, Redwood, Nux.js, which is the view one, Express and Connect. So Connect is like that Node.js uh, middleware thing. So basically with any Node.js thing. I am also looking to create an integration with SvelteKit once that comes out. I want to have that. Yeah, I got my um,
1: SvelteKit, Svelte Kits. Actually, I wrote yeah. a blog post about Svelte Kit, and it's, like, by far the most read thing I've ever written. For some yeah. reason, there seems to be a decent amount of interest in SvelteKit.
2: Sorry, we've skipped over that I think is, like, so massive, your abstraction of webhooks. Because if you didn't know, I've dealt with a lot of webhooks now, and I hate them, especially Stripe's webhooks. But looking at what you've done at Quirrell, how it's this like abstractive library where you just say point query at this API endpoint and we'll take the webhooks away and give you a nice little section for you to write your async function and we'll do the rest. I want that for every single client that has webhooks. If you could just do it for Stripe, do it for Postmark, I would pay all the money in the world for that.
1: It's a common theme for Chris. He's like, I, I just don't want to do anything with Stripe. Why can't all of my frameworks solve all my Stripe problems okay. for me?
0: One one nice thing about, about Stripe is it's not as bad as Paddle. That's that's a good good thing with Stripe. So I use Paddle <laughs> with Curl, and their webhooks, like Paddle is fine, but their webhooks are, are crap. There's some like signature-based authentication and you need to sort your request body in the same way that the PHP standard sorting algorithm sorts it. So you need to implement a special sorting algorithm for it, and it's just bonkers.
2: Okay, that's worse, but I can maybe one up for you. I hosted my Redwood project on Versailles, and I came across a breaking bug where Stripe would not verify any webhooks that were sent through Versailles. After speaking to Stripe, Redwood, and Versal, they all said it was each other's fault. That bug is still there. No clue how it's fixable. Oh my god, yeah. So, Versal. That's Jeff with
1: the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, Versal plus Redwood plus Stripe is kind of, like, broken. But nobody's fixing it right now.
0: Maybe it's Amazon. That's the only missing party.
2: Maybe it's Amazon. Exactly. Because they're all doing abstractions on top of Amazon. But... The abstraction of the webhooks, say no more. (laughs) I want this everywhere.
1: You have a paid version of this as well. So you have, it sounds like you've got like a hobby dev version that you can start off with, and then there's also a paid version as well. So how does that kind of
0: work? Yeah, so Quirrell itself is MIT licensed. It's fully open source. I want to put that out. So if you want to host it yourself, you're totally free to host it yourself. But considering that it's for several use cases, I think people want to have a hosted version, so I offer one. On that hosted version, there is a free free account version where you have 100 API calls a month for free. So that would equate to like three cron jobs a day. Then there is a paid version, which is 20 bucks a month, where you get 10,000 API calls for free. And to be honest, like you can even use more it's just says 10,000, I think, to have some legal grounds there. Payment subscriptions are hard.
2: It's what we're going through with other is like, how much do we price this? And we go, stick your finger in the air. Is it the same as yesterday? Do you feel the same as yesterday or not?
0: <laughs> yeah, and, like, the thing is that I want to have a pay-per-use kind of payment model, but I am struggling to find a payment plan that really works because... On the one hand, I want, like, there's two two different usage profiles of Quirrell. There are people that use it professionally, but with very little jobs, like having one cron job a day or something, like 30 a month, or maybe like 100 cron jobs a day or 10 cron well, just jobs real a quick, day. Can,
1: can mm-hmm. we talk about what is the difference between a cron job and a background job? Yeah, and How those sure. two relate to each so other? This, this has been brought before. It's never quite stuck in my brain, but I know that these terms both get thrown around as if yeah. they're the same thing, but they're not.
0: CronJob is a term that stems back from a tool in Linux or in Unix. So it's a operating systems tool where you give it a schedule and a command that it should run on that schedule. So you could say, run this command, like any Linux command, every day at 4.05 or something at some at some schedule or every Friday on the first of the month, when the moon shines something like that Uh, so you can very can do very ridiculous schedules and that these are those like recurring jobs Um, those are cron jobs so maybe cron jobs like chronologically and then there are background jobs or i call them queues which are the imperative version of that so you don't say i want to be called three times a month or something but you say here i create a new job have that execute in three days and have it repeat three times or have it repeat along that cron schedule three times at maximum, but you create it imperatively. So when you want to have like some analytics thing like, like Christopher, you would use cron jobs to have something run like every day at 7 p.m. And when you want to have some jobs that are come from certain events in your system, maybe you have new user who you want to send an email out in like five minutes um, that would be a queue so
2: it would be very hard to say when i chris joins the service i'm going to attach a cron job for five days but that's actually when i chris join the service i'm going to be creating a background task job for five days yeah
0: yeah And then like the difference is you can actually, you can create background jobs that run on a cron schedule. The thing is cron by itself is just like the specification or like, no, it's not just that, but cron by itself is often referred to as just the specification of like that syntax of how to write out those schedules. It's not very human friendly. So there's a lot of stars in it for like any reason, but. That is like just a syntax to define when a job should run. And you can create background jobs that repeat along a cron schedule. That is possible. But like the difference is cron jobs are basically static. Cron jobs, they like, they're once per system. And then queues are invoked dynamically in your system or you can cre- dynamically enqueue jobs into queues.
1: I can see why this has confused me in the past.
2: Yeah. <laughs> to me, in my head, a cron job is something I would set up to do X amount of times, and a background job is something that I set something to run once an event has happened.
0: That is correct. That is that is really nice put, yeah.
2: Yeah. I've got a few questions, and they're all subjective. There's no easy answer, because obviously this is how and why. But, for example, we have logs, right? You have to have them in an enterprise system, but on the free tier, you say you get them for three days. What, in your eyes, would be better to use a cron job that would run every midnight, deleting every cron job, every log that is now expired, or... A background task that runs individually on every
0: log. Well, you should use a cron job because like having a background task for every log that would mean like how how many logs are there? A lot of them. Yeah. And uh, you should just use a cron job and then you can mass delete your logs.
2: Because this is the thing that in my head you have to think about. Background tasks and cron jobs are like two different functionalities and you need to understand the different use cases like the logs is a good example there's going to be mass quantities of them but if you set a background job you can do that but then it's going to be requiring your system to do a lot more work on every scale but a cron job would require it to just do it once a day for example so my next use case is say Like an invitation, you've just invited someone to your platform and they don't join within the first four days, right? So you decide to queue up an email for the fifth day, but on the fourth day they join. So can you cancel cron jobs or background jobs?
0: Yeah, so uh, you can't can't cancel cron jobs but you can cancel background jobs, So you can attach IDs to, to those background jobs, and then you can use those IDs to delete them afterwards. And if you don't attach IDs, they're just auto-generated for you, so you also have them, yeah. There's actually like, there are full, like, create, read, and delete functionality built-in. So you can basically enqueue new jobs, delete jobs. You can invoke jobs, which basically means ignore the desired running time, just executed now, and then there's reading. So you can either fetch one specific jobs, uh, one specific job by ID, or you can fetch, uh, you can iterate through all the jobs in a queue.
2: Okay. Now I have an interesting one. That's a scenario you have say 900 users and you want to send them a notification but you want to say, send it in three batches. You could say, I want to run a cron job that would send it to group A at one o'clock, group B at two o'clock and group C at three o'clock. You wouldn't use background jobs off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I think like on that, like it depends. So imagine you have a like back office interface for creating those batches, like some in-house tooling, and you actually want to have those batch sending things be created dynamically, you would use background keys, but if your developers specify that once, then you'd use cron jobs, yeah.
2: So if anything, it's basically, if you're going to do something manually, it's a cron job, What manually, automatically, it's a cron job, and if it's automatically, automatically, then it's a background job.
0: (laughs) That's one way to put it. Yeah.
2: Does Does that help conceptualize it, uh, Anthony, as like use cases and?
1: Yeah, this stuff is hard because it's so low level it's really important mm-hmm. to to really get some some concrete use use cases so yeah i'm glad you glad you kind of went, went through all that i'm gonna be this will be one of those episodes i'll be enjoying going back and listening to and <laughs> learning a lot myself
0: yeah. so uh, one of the ways that i use Cruel myself just as another use case is so squirrel uses curl itself it's like full recursion um full meta so there is like basically there's two parts of curl. There's the query API and the curl clients, which is like what when I say curl, what I refer to. And then there's curl.dev, which is like the uh, the landing page of curl and the whole dashboard. That is a whole other project, and it's basically just like an an interface for the hosted curl version. Yeah, this yeah. probably
1: was confusing with for Peter as well because yeah. it's like kind of a Rails app, but it's also mm-hmm. built with Redwood, and I yeah. think that's, that's why in my, in my brain that, does, that never really made any sense, but as you say, it's because it's really kind of two things here.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. And Quirrell.dev, the landing page, or I also call it Quirrell dashboard because it's basically a dashboard. Once an hour, it calls the Quirrell API to get usage statistics about what user used how many calls, and that is implemented using a cron job, for example.
2: I think we've really covered everything. But on your landing page, you define background jobs in three separate categories. I guess these are just to help describe the use cases of them. But we could quickly explain the three to get the uses. A delay job is say, once a user signed up, email them a week later. A recurring job is every week send that user a report through email, but a fan out job. Now, please explain.
0: The thing is with serverless, you have a maximum execution time. I think on the cell, it's 40 seconds after which they just kill your, your Lambda.
1: This is why Nellify introduced background functions that run for fifteen minutes for this specific reason. Yeah,
0: correct. So, and when you when you have one task that is that basically consists of a lot of subtasks. For example, I I, I talked to a cool client that uses like he has some some third party API that he synchronizes with, and whenever he synchronizes, he gets between. I think 4,000 4, and 5,000 uh, items back. And for some of those items, he needs to do more calls. So he basically needs to do like, imagine every, every 10 minutes he needs to do like a couple of thousand um, network calls. And that would not be possible if you just have those, those 40 seconds, like it's very long running, but it's paralyzable. And one thing you now can do is enqueue those jobs into Querrel, and Querrel will then call back the cell but create 10,000 executions, something like that. Or 10,000 is a bit, bit much, but like the idea is that you can basically split out work that occurs in one execution across a lot of lambdas, across a lot, across a lot of functions, that's the idea.
1: We're getting close to the end of our time here simon thank you so much for for being here and talking with us and explaining all these crazy projects you're working on i'm like so massively impressed by like the the stuff you've already done in your <laughs> fairly fairly short career so uh, thank you for all your your open source contributions is there anything that you want to talk about in terms of things you're excited for things you're working on anything like that
0: i am very excited when i see how much stuff the last year brought and i am even more excited to see how i will think about this year at the end of this year there is already one project like in the pipeline that i'm working on with a friend where we are tackling problems or like the developer experience of event-based systems yeah the basic idea is to make real-time systems more easy like simpler to to work with for developers
1: so you're gonna make meteor
0: kind of yeah (laughs) (laughs) we'll see like it's it's not on the scale of meteor it's not going to be like a full-fledged framework ambitious though
1: i like it i'm I'm, (laughs) I'm on that
0: yeah we'll, we'll we'll see how that works out
2: the only service that i've heard like this is pusher maybe i don't know if that's like
0: It's, it's a different thing. So it's not a service, it's more like a library and it's, um, so the way you work with React, like you don't need to think about real time. You just update your state and then everything updates down below and it will just update all the components it needs to update and stuff. And as a developer, you don't need to work with all of that event-driven stuff. And we're basically thinking about creating a similar kind of development development experience for the backend. That's that's what i are thinking about. Yeah, and actually we're thinking about using a custom React renderer for that, but maybe that's not the right approach. We'll see, like very much in the conceptual phase right now. But uh, yeah.
2: So thank you for your time, Simon. I've loved having you on and I'm going to be checking out this and repeater soon, and be a, making up my own mind on which one I need to use in my application.
0: Let me uh, let me know what you decided for.
2: I will, I will. But also, how the supporters can help. Quirrell has a demo, a free tier, and a feedback loop. If you think, how can I help Simon to grow Quirrell bigger, your simplest way to help could be just providing a bit of feedback.
0: Correct, that would be awesome.
2: That's my homework for the listeners. If you want to help see something grow, give some feedback or maybe even pay Simon some money to grow, grow,
1: bigger. Where can people find you online?
0: On Twitter, it's at Sknot, so S K N zero, it's a zero, not an O, zero tt it's knot, or simonknot.de or just googling my name I think that works as well
2: awesome thank you for your
1: time Simon
0: yeah thanks for having me